This is oh, there we are. Oh my god, I'm on. I love it when it works. Oh, I do not want to turn on notifications. Good lord, that sounds terrible. Why is it now saying I'm not on there anymore? I was on there. No, I'm not on there. What the fuck? What? Why? What the? Oh, there I am. There I am. Hi, folks. I'm indoors because the great storm has come. The storm is coming. Q is right. Oh, my God. The storm is here. It's storming out. This is the storm that they spoke of, and now we're having it. Storming it up. Old Stormy Daniels. Uh, yeah, I'm honestly shocked. I kind of thought that New York's days of uh, accumulating snow before March were over. Got to walk through it as it started. It really gave me um, old, old homesick vibes of Wisconsin. Raising my ass off, walking home from school. Nice. Uh, we will be talking later in the episode, stream, whatever the hell you want to call this, moment in time, about the first three chapters of uh, this here book, The Republic for Which It Stands, by Richard White. But I wanted to uh, give people a chance to show up, you know, if they've read the book. I don't want to start off. Because, yeah, you get more people as time goes on in these things, generally. So, like, in about half an hour or so, uh, we'll start talking about the book. Right now, uh, I wanted to comment on something that I've noticed, which is every time Barfsacko Crumbo comes out with one of his uh, absolutely banal popular culture takes, where he's, he talks about, oh, uh, Parasite, oh, that's a great movie, or... When he just talked about how, while he was writing his awful memoir, he uh, found solace in Better Call Saul and The Boys. I mean, obviously, part of me is very smug about being like, aha, here literally is our prestige TV president talking about how much he loves these shows. Think about Trump, relative, uh, comparatively. Does Trump ever talk about uh, an hour-long streaming dramas? No, he talks about watching Fox News or Newsmax or whatever, or CNN. He talks about... Uh, cable news, which is basically a reality TV channel. Like, if you take the concept of reality TV seriously as this, uh, the, the, the destruction of the barrier between, you know, uh, living in America and, and watching America, cable news, which is very little news in it, obviously, it's mostly to be talking heads, emoting about politics, is essentially a fucking reality show and all those people yelling like Hannity that's just an incredibly long confessional sequence you know I can't believe Nancy Pelosi uh, ate the peanut butter with her finger and put it back in the uh, on the shelf that kind of thing so again we see the prestige TV president and the reality TV president and our prestige TV president he was loves watching the boys and he loves he loved watching the wire when it was on and one thing I see a lot is people saying how is Obama watching these shows, considering all of the anti-corporate, anti-capitalist themes in them? How is he watching them? He must not be absorbing them. He's either lying about watching them, or he um, he is not uh, he is not he is somehow missing the subtext that I am able to absorb. 
And I am here to ask, uh, posit this. What about this? What about this possibility? What if Barf Sacco Crumbo gets exactly everything out of these shows that you do and these movies? He sees Parasite. He watches The Boys. He's not uh, coming out with some mutated version in his head. He's getting the same message as you are. It just doesn't fucking matter because this is just entertainment at the end of the day. And his position is fixed enough in the world and his uh, value system is fixed enough around uh, maintaining you know, his, his role as a power broker within it that nothing he's going to see is going to change his mind. And I think, see, otherwise smart people kind of like instinctively reject the notion that he could be absorbing this art at the level that they are because there is buried in all of our assumptions about artistic consumption that are now completely intertwined with our politics. The way we talk about uh, t uh, television and movies specifically is essentially, is completely in in inextricable from politics. You it's almost impossible to have a conversation about any uh, any of these products that is not inherently politicized before you even start talking. And of course, it's always politicized, but I mean explicit politics as opposed to like broader, you know, ideological underpinnings of work. And the, pr the reason you do that, I mean, obviously it's because, in my cynical view, because there isn't a lot of art in this stuff and you've got to fill fucking column inches with something. You've got to fill the void with something. You can't, you can't uh, confront with sober sense the, the hollowness of all of this. But also is a similar delusion that comes from the, resist, the rejection of that reality, which is watching the right shows, watching the right movies will somehow make you a better person in a fundamental way, not just in your outlook, but in your actions. It will change you for the better in your day-to-day -day, uh, experience of life. And while that is true of great works of art and the individual's re, uh, response to a great work of art, or even an individual's response to a specific piece of, uh, you know, more uh, attenuated art that has like a specific resonance to them, that's the case. But it cannot be scaled. And that is the fantasy at the heart of all of this political fixation with our with our media, is that we assume that there's some extrapolatable and and uh and compounding social vector towards good or evil that emanates out of a popular film or television series and i am here today to say that there's not there's nothing it doesn't do anything our, our moral choices are are determined by uh by interests that are far, far deeper than any glib shit we're going to pull out of a fucking TV show that by definition is fucking spoon-feeding us. If it wasn't spoon-feeding us, it wouldn't be on television. So I'm sorry. I think, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think Obama is a smart guy. I don't think he would have got where he was if he wasn't. Unless you believe he was a CIA clone from a vat, and maybe. But he clearly was able to apply strategic and tactical insights in the political process that allowed him to defeat, to essentially jump the line ahead of a bunch of other people. And that required more than just oratorical skill. Uh, but like, he's not a great mind, obviously. He's very, uh, he is he is happy in his change. He's happy in the fetters that he has given himself because they excuse him to do whatever he wants. They give him the excuse to pursue power nakedly 
because, well, somebody's going to pursue power nakedly, and I'm afraid we have to be Niburian in our, in our understanding that, that the evils of the world cannot ever be vanquished, and that attempting to do so is a greater evil than even those existing evils. And so, therefore, we are left with the question of how to live, and therefore, if I want to dedicate myself to rising to the top of this, this pyramid of, viol of monstrosity and oppression, by uh, by putting a, a smiley, fa uh, diverse face on a neoliberal retrenchment that's going to immiserate everybody and that is going to just continue this driving, ratcheting, capillary action of human misery. Someone's got to do it. It might as well be me. It might as well be the sensitive guy who reads the right books and watches the right shows and watches the right movies and comes to the right conclusions about them. The ones, The same ones that we in the fucking cheap seats come to. But they don't, he is able to rationalize them the way we all are, every day, with everything we know to be true but can't deal with, because accepting one truth means dis, uh, inconveniencing ourselves in some significant way. And we have to get to a point where that, where, where that truth has an emotional weight that is anywhere, equal, anywhere close to the emotional weight of our more embedded personalized preferences, what we think we want. The only way to get there is through, I hate to be a broken record, but through spirituality, through, through, through the uh, ritualized uh, uh, enchantment of ideas and enchantment of values that can give them a, a motivational force that can break away from the, the um, gravitational pull of self-interest. Barack Obama was able to take his self-interest and turn it into a religion. That's why he was able to do what he did. But most of us aren't that, aren't that skilled or aren't that sociopathic. And we have to muddle through, being pulled between what we know to be true every moment and what is convenient for us in our personal uh, understandings of our, our self-interest. And, and, and it's fighting those things that's our daily battle. And, and art is an expression of that conflict, but it is not ever going to resolve it for us and it's hard to understand or it's hard to grasp that because it really does render a lot of the time and energy we put into consuming and talking about media and uh, makes it a, kind of a, a, a empty and, and pathetic waste of time. And, and since we have no idea of what to fill that void with, we'd rather avoid that, that reality altogether. Like I said, that the, the prestige TV antiheroes are sociopaths. Honestly, I don't think they are because then there wouldn't be a show. Like the shows, those shows are about a deeply, deeply talented in one way or another and also deeply, deeply um, selfish person battling with whatever fragmentary, uh, echoed, half-remembered conscience they might have. The thing that makes them unable to just be happy in their consumption. But their audience, their imagined audience, that guy I was talking about, the one that they're all subconsciously writing for, that upper middle class striving, fixed, eyes fixed on self-advancement professional who is the ur-consumer of this stuff, that's a sociopath. That's a person who has fully resolved these conflicts. That's why you wouldn't want to watch a show about them. That's why you wouldn't want to watch a show about Obama. 
Uh, a prestige TV show where Obama is the protagonist would be absolutely sterile and boring. None of, there'd be none of the psychological torment. There wouldn't be any of the any of the strum and drang and the and the and the dark humor that you get with other sh- with shows about people trying to like gesture towards a sense of uh, morality that transcended their personal interest. Barack Obama makes no spends no effort doing that. Spend, spends not a second. Uh, wondering about that stuff. So how would the show be interesting? And that is what and that's be, and and that's because television like all mass market art is about not only about but is partially about and this is one of the things that attenuates its artistic uh uh merit like it's it's generalized artistic uh, value as an art form is that it's pandering. It's pandering to that audience. It's giving them what they think they want to see because if they didn't want to see it, they wouldn't watch it. And if they don't watch it, you're not going to get another episode and you're not going to get another renewal and you're not going to get to make another movie. And that is a compromise that is deeper even than thought with, with these guys, the, the, these showrunners who created these programs. And so they're flattering them. They're taking that fucking blank-eyed uh, uh, pr- a professional psychopath and they're giving them, they're, they're flattering them and extending to them the uh, fiction that they have a conscience to struggle with, which they don't. Why wouldn't Obama like the boys? I don't understand why it's insane that Obama would like the boys. Like he, 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 like I have said, he doesn't think that he is he has power. He doesn't think that that the president is fundamentally a, a a job that is about doing things from one's own volition. It's about serving a mechanism that is inviolable. So he, what what why would he why would he be horrified by the boys? Why would that make him discomfited? I don't hate the boys. The boys is fine. It's not anything to write home about, and if it's what prestige TV is now, then the fucking genre is, I mean, a complete joke, although honestly, season four of Fargo should have fucking put the nail in the coffin there anyway. Holy shit, what a piece of shit. What a pretentious gar- I hate using the word pretentious. Anybody who, do call, who calls art pretentious is, is just culling on themselves most of the time. But for, for season four of Fargo is Noah, Noah Hawley, the guy who created it, showing the fundamental problem with him as a television creator, which is that he thinks he's too good for TV. Remember, this is a guy who has directed a film, written directed a film, which, by the way, I watched and sucks, uh, wrote a book that I'm not reading. Television is, in his own mind, beneath him. And that shows throughout all of his work, but in season four of Fargo, it's just, it's overpowering. Yeah, Prestige TV is 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 the Obama of art. It's this thing that is all we have, like all we have, all <clears throat> all liberalism can stand on now. Now that it can no longer offer anything to anybody materially. Now that now that the 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 material pitch of the Democratic Party that made it the natural ruling party of the United States for forty years uh, is gone, and all they have left is the ability to push forward on the strength of celebrity, on the strength of personality. 
And you might say, but what about Biden? They wanted Obama again. They never wanted anything other than Obama, the Democratic electorate. They would have voted him a third term overwhelmingly if it hadn't been for the Constitution. If he'd been able to come back for like, uh, like Putin in this time, they would have voted for him overwhelmingly. If Michelle Obama had run, she would have gotten the nomination. Biden was the closest thing anyone had. Now, Buttigieg thought, I'm going to be gay Obama, but he doesn't actually have the charisma that Obama had. And, his, and the fact that he is so clearly trying to ape Obama's voice and mannerisms means that his ability to, to break out of that box is already, it's completely uh, uh, abrogated just by virtue of his, his transparent phoniness. So there was no Obama to pick. What there was was Obama's VP. So he would talk about rap rock, and people would be like, oh, yeah, rap rock. What about, I wonder what rap rock's doing. And you saw, they have a poll now. What was, what's your pick for uh, 2024? Michelle Obama, number one. And then Harris, number two, which is like six degrees of separation. The, the vice president's vice president. And that's why the Democrats are fucked, because they built everything. Around, in 2008, like Obama gave them this, this thought, this hope. Oh, we, we, can, we can govern during conditions of neoliberal austerity, never-ending, over-wrenching, continuously compounding neoliberal austerity without a material pitch to the voters with this uh, narrative. And they, I mean, and the proof of it was in the pudding in the form of Obama winning big and then winning a big re-election, which Democrats haven't done for a while. I mean, even even Clinton never won a majority of the vote. He was under 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 fifty percent, well under fifty percent. He was at like even in his re-election where he crushed Dole. I think he got like forty six percent of the vote. Someone can correct me on that, but it was not fifty because both times he was running in three way races with Perot, who took you know a decent chunk for the the the. the the, the best that a, a third-party candidate has done since, like, TR was uh, Perot in 96 and 92. Maybe Wallace in 68, I'm not sure. I gotta look at it. But anyway, one, either way, they really don't have a record of big, big fucking uh, crushing victories. And he got it. And then he got re-elected. Even though, uh, you know, it looked closer than, than it should have been. And even though... But while this was happening, of course... The litany has been said a million times. They lost a thousand uh, state legislator seats. They lost like a fucking third of governorships. They lost the House and then the Senate. And then they tried to run austerity with Hillary, got killed, got to run with Biden, and a little shine of nostalgia and Trump's unique, uh, 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 unique uncouthness, unique uncouthness to the nation's well-off, meant that he could win. Um, like, I remember before the election, I said that the reason I think, uh, after, the, after the first debate, I said, I think Biden's going to win, and the reason he's going to win is because people are going to have a choice between four more years of ever-cranking political rhetoric or kind of taking the, the heat off of the kettle for a little bit. And I said people are going to pick that because there's still, there's still relative security in this country. There's still, even with pre precarity, there is enough security among voting people that that'll carry through. And if you look at the electorate, you look at the, the, the votes, you look how the vote broke down, the most comfortable people shifted to Biden from Trump because they have a house. They've got maybe a boat, maybe a, maybe a ski-doo, 
uh, maybe two cars in the garage. They can go, they, they have some 401k money. They don't want to be in the street shooting it out with Antifa. Where did Trump gain? He gained amongst people who have the least to lose. The people who saw the ratcheting up political rhetoric and, and, the, and the move towards conflict and said, sure, bring conflict. Why not? But they have no, they're screwed. The Democrats are fucked because it was always a fraud. The whole thing was a fraud. It all depended on the specific charisma of Barsacco Crumbo, which is now, thanks to the Constitution, no longer uh, accessible. And there's nobody in the wings. There's nobody who comes close. There's a bunch of off-brand Obamas, like fucking Cory Booker, who's like a, a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic on the fritz trying to do Obama. And then you got fake-ass Buttigieg, and then who else? There's nobody. There's nobody. It's, it's a bunch of fossils who, who've clogged up the top of the party because they do not want to hand the, the reins over to anybody who is not fully enthralled by the machine the way they are. And they don't trust anybody else to run the thing. And they're all insane megalomaniacs who don't think they can die like every other old American who's all decided that they're immoral. <coughs> and this is just like prestige TV. Coming into the, and, and uh, oh, the, uh, and, but then lastly, so this is a totally fraudulent and, and, and uh, doomed project, but Democrats are going to double and triple down because they don't have anything else. And so they've convinced themselves that this is the only way things can be, and that actually if you criticize it, uh, you're a piece of shit. Prestige TV is essentially the same thing. It filled the void of attention that people had once their attention spans have been destroyed by the internet and their ability to uh, put any thought or concentration into a difficult work of art was scrubbed away by the daily abuse of like being a, 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 a screen-centric human uh, and also working, working, working more and more and more and having less and less time to devote to anything other than the most brain-smoothening of recreational activities. And in that, but, but, you know, hey, if you went to college, you know you're supposed to want something more than that, you know, and, and there is that yearning we actually have that cannot often be articulated, but still drives us in some way, and fucking Prestige TV filled the void. Hey, you know that crap, that slop for pigs that they used to sell commercial, that they used to sell beer and fucking uh, diet pills? Uh, it's actually uh, the premier form of artistic expression of our time. Oh, good. And then they wrote it, and then they're sticking with it, and they'll tell you that you're, what, like an elitist or some shit, or, uh, or somehow racist or problematic for saying that, uh, instead of confronting it, because they have nothing else. There's nothing else, because nobody has the energy or the attention to, to pursue anything more challenging. And even if they wanted to, who could talk to them about it? And that's, nine, that's half of it right there. At least half. Maybe more, honestly, at this point. Well more than half is talking about it. Talking about our artistic uh, pers uh, uh, consumption. And if you don't have other people who have had the same experiences, who can you bounce things off of? Who can you get responses to your hot takes from, both in real life and online?
And so Barfsack is our Prestige TV tel uh, president, and Prestige TV is our, our the Barfsack of uh, art. Is the, is that strike in India actually still happening? Because I thought it was one of because the, the thing about India is once every once in a while, like two hundred and fifty people will go on strike, but it's like a two day demonstration that's in conjunction with like a communist state government, and like it's not really a strike. I mean, how many people who get freaked out, who get very excited about Indian strikes are aware of that? I wonder if there's just a lot of semantic confusion there. People get excited because they hear general strike. And, and whenever anything happens politically in India, the sheer number of people makes your hair stand on because it's hard to conceive of, of that, you know, coming from America, which, you know, is hilariously small population-wise comparatively. Uh, but, you know, it's not... I mean, it's. I, I'm. I'm glad to see uh, Modi get any kind of pushback, but uh, I know that there are continuing protests by farmers uh, in India. Haha! Oh. <laughs> Biden is the Mad TV president. That's actually pretty good. We were. We've joked on the show before, by the way, about how. One of the good things about Biden being president is that they'll bring back Mad TV because no one's going to be uh, the 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 perpetual outbidding on wokeness and like uh, uh, um, uh, a sensitivity to to uh, to prejudice in 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 media that has defined the Trump era is going to let up because Trump's not president anymore and everybody's going to feel a little more relaxed and that we're going to bring back Mad TV. Biden is, 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 I mean, those stories, like those corn pop stories and, uh, and, uh, dog face pony soldier. I mean, the whole thing, he could be a mad TV character. Like the mad, he would be, he would have been the president in a mad TV sketch, just coming out and talking about, you know, uh, taking a 57 Chevy to the malt shop and, and then like he crashes through a wall or something. Come on, man. Isn't that a great uh, catchphrase for a Mad TV character? All right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit now about the Republic of Richard Sands, which in its first three chapters sketches out the uh, early stages of Reconstruction in the South, and what uh, Richard uh, calls the Greater Reconstruction that encompassed also the uh, the development of America's Western ex uh, expanse. And the first thing we get uh, in the first chapter about uh, president about uh, about presidential Reconstruction is a good hard look at our worst president, uh, Andrew Johnson, a man who is almost singularly uh, catastrophic in American history, because there are very few people you can look at and say almost anyone who could conceivably have been where they were would have been better. And then you look at how 
how how much happenstance and 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 total uh you know random chance went into him getting it it's it is enough to make you feel like there are other worlds than these and that and that we're in the dark one and that things like that not just that but things like that are the hallmarks of a world where you know even far farther back than that some domino fell in the wrong place and uh and they've been falling wrong ever since and man that feels like one real bad domino is uh, andrew johnson being president and reading about the specific his specific mission which he made his uh presidency about which was to readmit the south uh as quickly as possible with the uh maintenance of existing uh, economic structures and political structures um And then seeing how much effect that had in terms of un undermining the very early stages of Reconstruction, uh, and the thing is, is that you know once the once Congress came back from their hilariously long uh, um, recess, Congress back then was basically a part-time job, and uh, Congress convened like new Congresses convened far later like than they do now. It was kind of a nightmare, honestly, and it's one of the reasons they changed it, but even after they got back. So you had a period of pure presidential reconstruction until like December of 1865. And then even after Congress comes back, and then even after Congress is com comes back even more radically Republican after 66 midterms, uh, Johnson is able to uh, do an insane amount of damage. And at the most critical time, because even once Grant gets in, we haven't gotten there yet in the book, or uh, uh, or haven't spent much time anyway with the Grant administration. But once Grant gets in, and and is able to carry out, you know, the more radical Reconstruction in in collaborate more in collaboration with Congress than fighting them, uh, they are trying to reconstruct now on a situation that has much less of the fluidity, much less of the contingency, much less of the um, potential that existed in April of 1865 because fucking Andrew Johnson spent four years cheating all over it. And it's it really makes me more resolved than ever to really try to pursue this as a project, this idea of like if Lincoln lives, because it would not I, I, I would not want to make Lincoln like this world historic savior figure. Uh, more than anything, I want to make Johnson the world historically catastrophic figure that he is. Because, it, honestly, like, Lincoln is assassinated and Hannibal Hamlin was still his VP, or, or, or uh, uh, fucking Azerod had gone through with his mission to kill Johnson, and Benjamin Wade, the radical Republican uh, president pro tem of the Senate, becomes president. You could still have had a much better outcome of Reconstruction. Although I think Lincoln is sort of uniquely suited in that moment to, you know, at, the, at that most protean moment to be exercising power. But things could have gone better with almost anyone else there. Uh, and yeah, like it's less about Lincoln living than about Johnson not getting to be there and to just 
God, oh God, breaking up the fucking the the land grants that Sherman had given to Friedman in the in the coastal Carolinas. I mean, like that could have been the bedrock of a of a uh, the model of a redistributive uh, reconstruction that could have been seized upon by guys like Stevens and Sumner and Wade uh, and Lincoln eventually, not at first, of course, like, but maybe over time pulled in that direction by the flow of events. Um, we didn't get that, obviously. We got instead this. And uh, so obviously Andrew Johnson, history's greatest monster, an incredibly Trumpian, like just perfect, the, the, the way that he would uh, personalize everything, hyper paranoid, the the fact that he went on a fucking, he went on a presidential stump speaking tour to try to whip up hatred of Congress, his, uh, the party that had nominated him, by the way, to be the fucking president, uh, or to be the vice president, and the only difference is that he got fucking, uh, fucking heckled like crazy when he went out and did that. People, people owned the shit out of him because he was flying in the face of Northern opinion. This is the other part of it is that he was, his, his mission had no constituency in the North. And, and honestly, even in the South, the constituency was pretty busted up because there were a lot of, uh, uh, Southern ex-Confederates who wouldn't even look the gift horse Johnson was giving them. He, they were looking it in the mouth. They wouldn't even accept his mechanisms because they involve too much too much besmirching of their honor um yeah he did like a, they're being very unfair to me but the specific phenomenon uh, of johnson johnson's presidency which he spent trying to create the constituency for a white supremacist third party that he would be able to head and then run for re-election with is almost precisely what happened the last time a uh, not the the challenger to the Democratic Party in the uh, in the in the second party system uh, tried to um, uh, create a broad tent to defeat that party, which was the Whig nomination of John Tyler to be uh, William Henry Harrison's running mate in uh, 1840. One of the most catastrophic, the catastrophe that set the stage for all the catastrophes to come on is other, because honestly, that's another point where you can get wacky with the counterfactual. So Henry Clay, who is like the, 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 the intellectual founder of the Whig Party, the guy, and also the political, um, uh, the biggest political influence on Lincoln. Lincoln loved Henry Clay. Lincoln thought Henry Clay was the ideal American uh, politician, and he was a Whig before he was a Republican, and his politics were always the Whig notion of a, um, you know, a, a, a yeoman republic uh, that is uh, nurtured and allowed to develop with coordination from central government, as opposed to the Jacksonian democratic uh, vision of just let everybody get corn liquored up and steal Indian land, and then that's it. There's nothing for the government to do. So Clay essentially founded the Whig Party and ran a, a number of times against Jackson, lost. Uh, and then 
1840, the Whigs had a real good chance because the economy had collapsed during Van Buren's presidency because the fucking, uh, the, 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 the model, the, the banking model that had replaced the destroyed Bank of the United States helped, helped create a, the Panic of 37, which really did discredit the Democratic project and discredit the, that, their whole idea, which at that point was the governing idea of people north and south, of voters north and south. Leave me alone to have my slaves or to uh, to buy my, to develop my land and to to um, heat myself with Indian scalps. That was that was that was by far the most popular political persuasion at the time, and it saw itself uh, fucking come to discredit by the collapse of the economy. And by Van Buren's refusal to do anything about it, because they're Democrats and they don't do anything about the, the the economy. That's not the government's job. And the Whigs really wanted to make sure they didn't fuck it up, so they didn't nominate Clay because he was a loser. They nominated a war guy, William Henry Harrison. Hey, war man! Yay, he fought in our colonial wars. You idiots like that, right? He's one of you. Uh, and. They offered the vice presidency to Clay, and Clay turned it down because he was pissed that they had not gotten him the nomination again, even though because it was his fucking party. And so then the Whigs did a catastrophically stupid thing, like I said, that stupid thing that set the stage for all the stupid things to come later. And that was they nominated John Tyler of South Carolina as the vice president because they were want they were trying to appeal as not as the party that was not the majority party of Americans. They wanted to appeal to never Jackson, basically, or never Van Buren, but really never Jackson, because Jackson was the Trump. He was the personality. Van Buren was just riding the wake, even though he was the mastermind. Clay was both, obviously, but um, for the Whigs. Uh, but anyway, he was a never Jackson Democrat. He had split with Jackson, not over internal improvements or in favor of the tariff, but the opposite over the uh, nullification crisis, over the question of whether or not uh, the South, uh, in the, in the South Carolina, could refuse to uh, carry out the, the, the uh, refuse to comply with the tariff laws that had been passed by Congress. And Jackson came down hard and said, I will hang John C. Calhoun, who was his own vice president, from a goddamn lamppost if these motherfuckers don't stop this. And Tyler and other Southern Democrats were horrified by that. The guys who ended up becoming the intellectual, uh, you know, uh, found uh, the intellectual backbone of uh, the secessionist movement, John C. Calhoun amongst them, but also Tyler. They said, we're horrified by this display of the absolutist power. And, and we don't like Jackson because of his, uh, his grasping for power. Not, not because of ideology necessarily, but just he is too power-seeking. And the fucking Whigs who called themselves the Whigs, they picked that name because the Whigs were the party in Parliament in England, which was, you know, the, the most close political culture to America's, the ones that Americans were most familiar with. The Whigs were the party of Parliament against the prerogative of the king, were the Tories, because they called him King Andrew, and they fa fancied themselves as the defenders of the Constitution against the, the uh, usurpations of Jacksonian democracy. And they wanted to get as big a tent for that message as possible. And so they said, hey, John Tyler, you're horrified by Jackson. How about you too? And they said, sure. They put him on the ticket. And then fucking William Henry Harrison uh, drinks the doo-doo water and dies. 
And instead of Henry Clay taking power with Whig majorities in both houses of Congress and being able to carry out, in the wake of the, the crisis of 37, carry out the American system, like actually try to enact a system of internal improvements that could have knit America together and mitigated against the rise of sectionalism uh, and perhaps slowed down the, the breakneck uh, move towards expansion across the continent. Instead, you got John Tyler, a guy who had no sympathy for the Whig ideology at any point and spent his entire term vetoing legislation from the party that nominated him and cozying up to Southern slaveholders and Democrats to create a third party run as the head of a explicitly pro-slavery party. And it didn't, it, it fucked up, it didn't work. And then they gave the, and then he didn't get the nomination of the Democrats, they nominated Polk. Uh, the Whigs obviously told him to get fucked and nominated Clay. And then Clay, God damn it, in 44, he came close. As close as he ever came. In fact, if New York had flipped, he would have won. And there's actually kind of a, uh, there's a, there is a uh, Jill Stein of the 20, uh, of the, 1844 campaign because there was a small abolitionist party called the Liberty Party which was uh, headed by an abolitionist named James Burney that polled somewhere around uh, I think 3% in New York which was more than the difference between Polk and Clay uh, in that state and most abolitionists in the North voted for the Whigs so it's likely that they would have if Burney hadn't been there they would have voted for Paul or voted for Clay. And so you could blame the Bernie Bros, the Bernie Bros for the Mexican War because it's less much less likely that Clay would have pursued a war with Mexico than Polk. And of course, if you don't have the Mexican War, you do not have the Civil War. So, once again, the even if you're not if you want to talk about the 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 uh, dominoes falling the wrong way, even before Lincoln being succeeded by Johnson, you have fucking Harrison being succeeded by Tyler. So the rest of the chapters that we read are about uh, the expansion of railroad infrastructure into the West. And uh, the way that White describes, and White is an expert on that specifically, uh, the westward, the, the frontier is really his uh, bailiwick. He's written a book that after this I might read because I'm enjoying this so far called Railroaded, which is specifically about the way that uh, railroad uh, infrastructure was built after the Civil War. Um, if you know anything about the way that the government works now, the way that they built the railroad is incredibly, incredibly familiar. A corrupt handshake between uh, consolidated capital, the capital that had, had emerged from the Civil War and the government. Uh, give, giving out land grants to railroads uh, as an, as, and pitch to the audience, to the American people, as a self-funding mechanism that will allow for the creation of, uh, of American transportation infrastructure at no cost to taxpayers. And instead, of course, what we got was a, the beginning of a, one, of a ratchet, ratcheting move towards full capture of all government uh, prerogatives by that concentrated capital. 
because the war was the original dynamo of American capital accumulation. And then after the war, what we replaced it with, which was not, of course, obviously not nearly the, uh, the intensity of the, of the war, but filling the same role was railroad infrastructure and then subsequent, uh, as part of, but sub subsidiary to that, uh, building of like American military, uh, uh, American military campaigns into, uh, to subdue Indian territories. And uh, I will say that I'm enjoying the book so far. Uh, I think that for a, you know, a, a political uh, and ideological history, it is very perceptive. I very much appreciate White's uh, emphasis on Protestantism and, and liberalism as drivers. At the, at the level of politics, obviously, this is all on top of a material base that he doesn't really talk about, but that's par for the course in this kind of history. It's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's going to be a political and cultural history. And the Oxford series that this is part of, which I've read several other uh, very good books from, like Battle Cry of Freedom uh, is, is, is probably the best one-volume book on the Civil War, and that's the Oxford, from the Oxford series. What Hath God Wrought, which c covers the pre-Civil War era, uh, like post-federal era, that's also very good, but they are fixed fixed mostly on culture and politics, which is always interesting in its own right, as long as you remember what this is all, what the real drivers are. But uh, at the le at the at the level of politics and culture, which you know is where the real viscosity is in any and in any political situation, and uh, and and where any kind of effort to direct the flow, the material. Uh, flow uh, is going to find itself concentrated and directed because the superstructure does determine and, and change the base but as I said as a subsidiary action is generated from originally and how that happens is much more contingent that's where contingency lies is in that superstructural relationship and one of the big contingencies is fucking god damn it Abraham Lincoln getting shot by that piece of shit fucking himbo and replaced by one of the worst men, honestly, just one of the worst human beings to ever occupy the presidency. And that's okay, saying a great deal because there are some monsters in there. But even, like, Andrew Johnson doesn't even have, any, uh, like, some of the personal virtues of the more charismatic or uh, personable psychopaths who've been president. Uh, and I, I, And people have told me, uh, you know, Lincoln and Anderson, and uh, Johnson, at the end of the day, would it have been that much different? They were both racist. I mean, yes, they were both racist, but but Andrew Johnson was... Uh, Lincoln was ambiently racist in the way that all 19th century white males were. Johnson was pathologically and personally and, like, Nixonianly racist. Uh, and that... he he was in a unique position as president in Reconstruction to have that personal animus shape, shape the fucking clay that everyone who came after one would have to build upon. Oh, God. Can't get over it. Oh, it's so bad. Oh. And the thing that's important about that, the reason that that matters, and that's the reason that we need to have some sort of... Uh, 
nuance when we think about these things, especially historically, is that racism can be part of your decision matrix, but it might be subsidiary or it might be uh, less influential than other aspects. It might get outvoted in your brain by other things. And whether it is or not uh, is determined by the virulence of your racism. Like, that matters at every level. Like, there are racists who voted for Barack Obama, you know? But the more racist you are, personally, the more aware you are of racism, the less likely you would have been probably to vote for Obama. So, degree matters. I mean, voting for Obama, not voting for Obama, uh, it's not the sole signal of one's like political virtue, but it does signal a willingness to cross a barrier of saying, yes, uh, black president, I will be okay with that that requires that your racism not be the thing that is deciding things for you at the level of politics. And, and that is a thing that people are very uncomfortable with, the idea that, because it just suggests the idea that you might have to deal with people politically who are racist. You might not be able to clean everybody's brain through culture and make them all nice uh, post-anti-racist uh, subjects before they can come together and do politics. You might have to do politics with people who have racism in there as one of the things that they're reasoning with. But the challenge then is to overcome it. And one of the big reasons that neoliberal politics and all of its flavors, including this radical, radical anti-racist, uh, like Afro-pessimism that essentially says that nothing but neoliberal accommodation is possible because of how racist white people are, the thing that undergirds that is you'll never be able to overcome racism. And as long as you're framing politics as the neoliberal zero-sum game that we are living in, the idea that it can only ever get worse and that it's up to you to hustle and learn to code and, and stay on your grind one way or another in order to survive, you'll never be able to overcome it. Twitch banned the word simp? That's funny. But anyway, I'm very looking I'm looking forward to the way that uh white weaves in uh Protestantism and like mass mass religious uh uh conceptions into the character into the stuff. Because one of the things that any more successful reconstruction would have had to push against would have been that very Protestant liberal association between uh, autonomy in the market and freedom of contract and the like the the conditions for virtuous living like there was a predominant sense that that by that point post second great awakening when we'd like uh, as a nation come to terms spiritually with being these atomized market uh, workers who might not even be able to have our own land, might have to sell our own labor to survive or sell our wares, which, you know, can be a similar prostrate position. Uh, we came to the conclusion that, that those interactions are what reveal our worth as people, reveal our, uh, our status as saved or damned. And with that the case, um, 
the government intervention in the economy that would have been required to do reconstruction in any way more uh, viably would have been very difficult. It would have been hard. But the thing is, it wasn't the only people, people thing people thought. There was there were other contending and conflicting uh, uh, values that were culturally expressed and held in different ways, and that could have been brought to bear to to insist upon uh, the breaking of this notion of contract as freedom. Because of course, as White shows very clearly, the post-war fixation on not allowing uh, po- uh, at black dependents by not giving without uh, uh, without without giving to ex-slaves. First of all, the idea that former slaves had not, by virtue of their enslavement, earned anything you could give them is absurd. I mean, they they literally are the reason that those plantations existed, and the reason that that land was cultivated, and the reason that there was any. Uh, economic activity in those areas at all. So uh, giving giving them land is in fact payment. It is a deferred payment. But beyond that absurdity is the compounding absurdity that giving shit to white people was the way that the fucking country had been built. And that's where racism comes in. But once again, racism is part of a mosaic of inf- of, of conceptions and influences and interests that could have been arranged differently with different a different uh, accumulation of events. And of course, as White points out, the funniest thing about Andrew Johnson is that he, he was, like many Unionists in the South before the Civil War, uh, he hated the planter aristocracy because he was not one of them. Uh, he had a Nixonian chip on his shoulder because he had been a low-born tailor, and he became wealthy and became a polit- political figure. But he was never one of the one of those t- you know uh, one of those planter aristocrats who were very self-consciously trying to create a European-style uh, a feudal uh, social order on American soil. Like they wanted to be, they thought of themselves as the Cavaliers from the fucking English Civil War. They all thought they were little Prince Ruperts of the Rhine running around in their little hats with plumes. And a guy, a, a drunk tailor like uh, Andrew Johnson could never be one of them. And so like, one of the reasons he stayed loyal to the Union was he didn't want to fight uh, to create a nation where they ran things. And his idea for Reconstruction was to, uh, was to put power into the hands of the, the simple white people of the South. Because like a lot of white Unionists, he thought that the real victims of slavery were poor whites. Of course, that's half true. Poor whites are the victims of slavery, but of course, not the real or only victims of slavery. And that's that the refusal to see the bigger picture is 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 what racism does. That's its social function is to obscure the reality uh, and to allow for the division of workers, the division of the dispossessed against each other. And the Reconstruction that Johnson pushed for, that he thought would empower the simple white people of the South, what did it do? It put every kudzu-covered, fancy-lad asshole in the South 
back in the saddle, back in power. Way to go. Good for you, Andrew. Good for you. I don't care about kudzu. Whatever. I don't live down there. It's too fucking humid. All right. So if anyone has any specific questions about what we've read, I'll pop in there. But I'm going to be wrapping up soon. Uh, so for, I don't think there's going to be a stream next Wednesday. I think I'm taking some time off next week. Uh, I've got other things to attend to. But when I get back, uh, let's do the... Let me look here. Yeah, let's do the rest of part one. Finish part one. So uh, chapters four through eight. That's a nice uh, stopping point. The name of the book, for those who are coming late, is The Republic for Which It Stands by Richard White. Well, the most cringe counterfactual is, duh, what if the Nazis had won the war? Because one, they couldn't have, and two, they did. A good book about the Cold War in Africa. There actually are two books. Uh, uh, by this guy, Piero Glejes. Uh, and it's about Cold War diplomacy in Africa. And a lot of it, and a lot of stuff about the Cuban intervention in the Angolan, uh, civil war. Uh, One's called Conflicting Missions, Havana, Washington, and Africa, eight, 1959 to 1976. And then there's another one, the sequel, Visions of Freedom, which is 76 to 91. The only one who ever got it right was uh, the Nazis winning the war right thing was Philip K. Dick, which, when he said, uh, as soon as they got nukes, they would have destroyed the world, which, yes. Why won't dump... All right, this is the last question here. Uh, why won't Trump go to jail in the state of New York? Because he was president. Presidents can't go to jail. When Nixon said, if the president does it, it's not illegal, he was right. In the sense that a president will never be um, criminally punished for anything they do in office. Or, once they're president, before. Because no political system 
will allow that precedent. At least ours won't. Ours will not. Because if you start arresting them, then everyone's going to end up in jail. And that's why uh, I think it was, I think Felix told me that his dad had an idea that the presidency, the presidency should be one long term, like 12 years or something, and then you're executed. Because if Trump goes to jail, some fucking attorney general is going to try to put Obama in jail or Biden in jail, and then you're off to the races, and they don't want to start that uh, precedent. And, I mean... And that's just like the political grandstanding. They sure as hell don't want the actual criminal behavior they, that they carry out to ever be accounted for. Because then how are they going to decide to do this? The decisions these people make, the monstrous criminal decisions they make, are only they can only make them in a context of total impunity. If there was any potential possible... Uh, uh, consequence... For their actions beyond like oh i might lose an election which you're gonna lose off you're gonna leave office eventually as in i might see my fortune taken from me see my freedom taken from me the way you know the rest of us have to decide to do things like we have to decide what to do in a day-to-day -day basis with the thing in our head of like oh if we do the wrong thing we could get in trouble in a real like sense in a real personal sense as in like forgetting like Stat and I know these guys super care about status and winning elections, but there is a freedom that they need in order to operate in knowing that your personal security and the security of your fortune and your family, and the it's never going anywhere. It can never be challenged. You're never going to see the inside of a jail cell. You're not going to get executed. You're not going to, what, maybe some hippie hits you with a pie when you're at the Aspen's Ideas Festival. That's it. You can't make these decisions without that as your bedline assumption. And they're not going to do anything to violate that. Conflicting missions and visions of hope are the two, or visions of freedom. Conflicting missions and visions of freedom are the two books about Cold War uh, foreign policy. Uh, all right, guys, I'm going to go. So I'll do some more streams this week, but next week it'll probably be dark. Just a heads up. And then when we come back, uh, and I'll give a heads up ahead of this, but like, let's shoot for the Wednesday after next, the rest of ha part one. Bye-bye.